dropping on my face. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen, but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, Jim Gaffigan posted a funny tweet that said, We should bundle all the streaming services and call it cable. That's essentially what it's become. With Netflix and Prime Video raising their prices, the consumer will be paying just as much for content they were complaining about when they were getting it through their cable companies. And as cable companies lose out on revenue because people are cutting the cord, they'll raise the price on access to the internet, which means the consumer will be paying even more. I guess the lesson is, be careful what you wish for. But recently, I received a free trial for Apple TV Plus and Paramount Plus, so now I've had access to all the main streaming services, and I have a couple of observations. First, I wonder how much money these companies spent on finding the right sound for their originals. Every one of them has a sound. Netflix, Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV Plus, I blame NBC and Must See TV. Remember? They were the first to have that recognizable sound, and everyone's been trying to rip it off ever since. Second, the navigation on some of these services leave little to be desired. It doesn't seem like a hard premise. You have a movie section, you have a series section. Break them up into categories or subgenres. Don't get too cute. No viewers ever thought to themselves, you know what, I'm in the mood to see a quirky comedy that's set in New York. Make it easy for me to find content. Lastly, if you're a multi-option service, make sure it's clear what content is available. Viewers who use streaming services want to know that they can select any movie or TV series and watch it immediately. I can't tell you how many times I've clicked on something and it wasn't streaming, but it gave me options to rent or buy. That's not what I'm paying $15 a month for. Show me what my money is getting me. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it. Two stars watch at your own risk. Three stars standard fare. Four stars worth checking out. And five stars must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. These are my ruminations and observations of the pilot episode for... Stargate SG-1 from 1997. Entitled Children of the Gods, it's a two-parter. The series was developed by Brad Wright and Jonathan Glasner, based on the movie Stargate by Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin. It originally aired on Showtime and does feature brief nudity and mild violence. 
The series moved to Sci-Fi Network for seasons 6 through 10. So how'd I miss it? Well, I didn't have Showtime in the late 90s, so I wasn't aware of the series, but there was a brief period of time where I watched the Sci-Fi Network almost exclusively, and I'd seen plenty of promos for Stargate SG-1. They also had some pretty cool lower third graphics where the name of the show and tune-in would come out of the portal, but I'd never seen the movie and wasn't sure how much of a connection there was to it, so I avoided watching the series even though it looked pretty cool. So in preparation of the episode, I did watch Stargate the movie as well. The pilot was directed by Mario Azapardi, who helmed episodes of Highlander, The Outer Limits, and Degrassi The Next Generation. The script was written by Jonathan Glasner and Brad Wright. This is something to look out for. The character of Samantha Carter mentions that it took us 15 years and three supercomputers to MacGyver a system for the gate on Earth which of course is a nod to the character Richard Dean Anderson played for seven seasons. So, a group of military officers play cards in the embarkation room when the Stargate portal activates. Senior Airman Carol Wetterings investigates the Shimmering Sphere when a device pops out. It scans her body and an alien named Apophis emerges from the portal with a battalion fitted in armor that kinda looks as if a Bastet had sex with a Dalek. Apophis's second-in-command, Jaffa, seizes Wetterings, and they easily wipe out her squadron. Before backup can stop them, the aliens disappear into the Stargate portal. It then cuts to the main title sequence. Very effective teaser. They certainly wasted no time. A good amount of action and instantly hooks you. I definitely want to see what happens next. Major Bert Samuels of the Air Force visits the house of retired Colonel Jack O'Neill. He's on orders from General Hammond, who wishes to speak with him about Stargate. Colonel Jack O'Neill is portrayed by Richard Dean Anderson, who starred in MacGyver as the titular character, and appeared in Stargate spin-offs Atlantis, Universe, and Continuum. He's brought to Cheyenne Mountain Facility, where he meets General George S. Hammond, played by Don S. Davis, known for Twin Peaks, The X-Files as Scully's father, and A League of Their Own as the Racine Bell's coach. Hammond escorts O'Neill to the infirmary where they have one of the aliens deceased. The beings have a swirling mark on their foreheads, slits on their stomach that is used as a pouch, similar to a kangaroo. Hammond mentions that the aliens killed four of his people and kidnapped another using advanced weapons they have no knowledge of how to operate. When they hand the staff to O'Neill, he navigates the weapon with ease. He's encountered these beings before. System Lord Ra was an alien that lived inside the human body, enslaving the host. O'Neill knew that he was an alien because his eyes glowed. Hammond asked if he's sure that Ra is dead. O'Neill responds, unless he could survive a tactical nuclear warhead blown up in his face. The general says that these alien beings guarded a man whose eyes glowed. As they walk through the facility, Hammond asks if O'Neill's perspective has changed regarding the Stargate mission a year later. Before he can answer, O'Neill spots Kowalski and Ferretti, who were under his command on the first mission. Their battalion was instructed to go through the Stargate to the planet of Abydos, detect any possible threat to Earth, and if found, detonate a nuclear device to destroy the gate on the other side. But that's not what happened, even though it was what O'Neill reported. He detonated the Mark III bomb on Ra's ship, which was in orbit above the planet at the time, so they eliminated the risk to Earth, but neither the gate nor the planet were destroyed. The gate was buried under rocks to prevent anyone from utilizing it. 
Hammond believes it's been unearthed, and will send a Mark V bomb to Abydos to destroy the gate and the planet to prevent further attacks. O'Neill objects because the inhabitants of the planet are peaceful and don't deserve to be collateral damage. He suggests to take a team through the gate to find out who those aliens are and any threat they might pose. Here's a quote without context. Oh, my problem is not with you being a woman. I like women. I just have a problem with scientists. Stargate SG-1 was an interesting pilot. I appreciate that the writers didn't use voiceover to give the viewers plot exposition, but the problem I had at first was that we were joining the story in progress, so the characters would mention names like we had any clue who they were referring to. So you have to pay attention for all those little details. The acting was good. I wanted to mention Amanda Tapping, who plays Major Samantha Carter. She appeared in Supernatural, Sanctuary, and Stargate spinoffs. Christopher Judge performed TLC, but he's mostly known for his voiceover work in video games and animated series. And Dr. Daniel Jackson was acted by Michael Shanks, who was in Saving Hope, Smallville, and a favorite of mine, Burn Notice. The special effects have aged a little, but the image of the Stargate portal still looks amazing. They couldn't have done better with it. I think it's apropos that the series moved to Sci-Fi Network because it reminds me of Dark Matter, Andromeda, Farscape, just that space opera. Now for a little trivial trivia. In 2009, the two-part episode was re-edited as Stargate SG-1 Children of the Gods Final Cut, which included additional scenes and revised special effects. This cinematography was captured by Peter F. Wost, whose filmography includes Sliders, It, the TV miniseries, and Cool Runnings. It was edited by Alan Lee, who worked on Highlander, the series, The L Word, and Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. The score was composed by Joel Goldsmith. It very much reminded me of the Aliens score, utilizing snare drums to represent an army marching. He's the oldest son of Jerry Goldsmith, composer of Alien, Total Recall, Rudy, and L.A. Confidential. The runtime of the pilot was 1 hour and 32 minutes, with subsequent episodes running at 44 minutes. I give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. I'd definitely be interested to see how the series progresses. Stargate SG-1 was on for 10 seasons, 213 episodes, from 1997 to 2007. If you've seen Stargate SG-1 and have opinions on the series, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. Last year on April 19th, we lost an incredible songwriter, pianist, and producer named Jim Steinman. He was most famous for his work with Meatloaf. Uh, No, not the ground beef dish. The Rotund Singer. Bat Out of Hell was released in 1977 and would go on to become one of the best-selling albums of all time with 50 million copies. Outside of the title track, it had the hits You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth, Heaven Can Wait, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, and the wedding staple Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I don't know how that became a trend. Its 1993 sequel, Bat Out of Hell 2, Back Into Hell, reunited Steinman and Loaf, and featured the monster hit, I'd Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. A 12-minute epic, which reached number one in 28 countries. The single itself sold over a million units in the United States alone. But 1983 was a big year for Jim. 
Three of his songs were in major rotation on adult contemporary radio. Read 'em and Weep by Barry Manilow, which was originally featured on the 1981 album Dead Ringer by Meatloaf, found much more success with the Mandy Singer. Making Love Out of Nothing at All reached number two on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 for the duo Air Supply. Only behind another Steinman hit, Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler, spending four weeks at the top of the chart. It was nominated for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance at the 1984 Grammy Awards. In 1985, he wrote the instrumental track, Hulk Hogan's Theme, which would be featured on the wrestling album by WWF, and Hulk Hogan's Rockin' Wrestling Cartoon. A year later, he added lyrics, and it would be released under the title Ravishing on the Bonnie Tyler album, Sweet Dreams and Forbidden Fire. This album also featured Holding Out for a Hero, which he co-wrote with Dean Pitchford. It would be included on the soundtrack for the movie Footloose. His last major hit would be in 1996 with It's All Coming Back to Me Now by Celine Dion. It would reach number two on the Billboard Hot 100. Later that year, he worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber on the musical Whistle Down the Wind, based on the 1961 movie. All of his songs have a signature sound that you can point to and say, yep, that's Jim Steinman, the piano, the choir vocals, and all over five minutes. They're truly epics that keep building to a climax. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2012 and the Long Island Music Hall of Fame in 2016, a product of Hewlett. I'm going to post a few of his hit songs in the Matt Watch That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Challenger, The Final Flight. It's a four-part documentary series created by Stephen Leckhart and Glenn Zipper that explores the 1986 tragedy. For the uninitiated, less than two minutes after launch, the space shuttle burst apart, killing all seven crew members, which included teacher Christina McAuliffe, who flew as part of the Teacher in Space program. It was broadcast live on television, and many schools were watching in assemblies or their classrooms, so a whole generation was left completely scarred. I don't remember the event, but have since watched it on YouTube and have mixed feelings. There's something very morbid about seeing it. It's like viewing the Zabruder film or footage of 9-11. You're literally watching the moment that someone or a group of people lost their lives. That doesn't sit well with me. But you also don't want people to forget events like this either. The documentary explores the historical context of the shuttle launch and the decisions made which led to the tragedy. It's compelling and sad. Challenger The Final Flight is currently available on Netflix. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for all the reviews, rants, and randomness. Sweet dreams and forbidden fire. Sweet dreams and forbidden fu- Sweet dreams and forbidden f- Okay. Hammond escorts O'Neill to the infirmary. 
Infirmary? Well. Major Bert Samuels of the Air Force visits the house of retired Colonel Jack Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson. <laughs>